Are you looking for the ultimate Christmas gift for the prepper in your family? Or maybe you are looking for affordable ways to prepare for what may be coming. If this is you, we have a curated list of unique gifts for all members of your family. But within that list, we have the ultimate list of prepper gifts. It includes important essentials from the medicine garden that turns your backyard into a complete natural pharmacy to the DIY solar panel guide that saves you up to 85% on solar panels. We also have the air fountain that extracts up to 10 gallons of water from even the driest desert air to the guide that helps you build a portable space energy generator to power your entire home for less than $300. And wait, there's more. The ultimate woodworking guide that comes with over 16,000 of the best woodworking plans available so you can make anything you want or need. And there is even more. To see all the options, go to sarahwestall.com under shop and look for the unique Christmas list on the top of the shop page or use the link below. You, there's many layers here. Let's talk about the the female queen of heavens and who she was and how that was systematically removed from the Bible. And there are many places where she was mentioned, and maybe it was a, a group of beings, um, just like the male version was a group of beings, but there's this female and they removed her. Could you talk about that? Yes, uh, there's an amazing portion of the Bible, uh, one and two Kings and the book of Ezra, that show us how the narrative was changed and how Judaism changed from its ancient form to its modern form. Now, its modern form is Yahwistic monotheism. Judaism believes in one God and they use the name Yahweh for that God. But you read those books and you realize that's not the original use of the name Yahweh, and it's not the original worldview of Judaism. If you go to Jeremiah as well, you will find him lamenting the fact that the uh, Jewish people of the 8th and 7th century BCE did not remember Yahweh favorably. He says they disparaged him. They'd rejected his laws and spoke very negatively of what it was like to be governed by him. But they remembered Asherah favorably. And on every high hill and under every green tree, from every fortified town to every garrison city, installations to Asherah could be found. And harvest festivals commemorating her help of their people in the deep past. She was honored as the one who taught them agriculture, who taught them health, sanitation, fertility, all the guides to living happily in balance with the planet and living healthily. And so when you read that memory alongside the Yahweh stories in which he's incinerating his own people, if they think for one moment they can question his orders, it's not hard to imagine why they might have disparaged him and remembered Asherah favorably. So here you have a story of uh, a, a conquest, colonization, violence, brutality, represented by the Yahweh story, and a memory of positive intervention by Asherah and others. Dagon is another one named. But in that period, described by those books, what happens is this, a king comes along who was a Yahwist, and he decides all his people should be Yahwists. 
And so he decides to get rid of the memory of all these other beings in his own temple and in temples throughout the country. And so the Jerusalem guard starts going around knocking down the standing stones, which they erected in the places where they had met advanced beings, knocking down the temples where they commemorated them, defacing the carvings, showing us what they looked like. He starts off this ritual reform, which his grandson, King Josiah, continues. And so he is then not only demolishing buildings and defacing installations, but he is getting rid of all the other Jewish priesthoods. So that by the end of this process, instead of having a country full of temples, full of memory of paleo contact, full of consulting rooms where you can go to your local priests to get higher information. Now, there's one temple in Jerusalem. All your tithes will go there. So there's this massive centralization of wealth. If you want to know what's what, it's the Jerusalem high priestly family that will tell you. Now there's only one narrative, one king, one high priest, one temple, centralization of power, wealth, narrative control and the bible tells us the whole process and by the time you get to ezra not only have they reformed the ritual they've reformed the scriptures as well so that every reference to the memory of paleo contact now has a layer of condemnation poured over it so that jeremiah can say all the people loved asherah p.s isn't that awful and once he's added the p.s you're sort of uh, press ganged into agreeing. Yes, that's awful. Yes, that's idolatry. And you miss the information he's just given. And if anyone is hearing this, and this is brand new information, and they're into the Bible, here's a little hack. Go back to those old stories and separate the information that the writer has given you from his opinion of it. And as soon as you do that and put his opinion to one side, you'll realize you're constantly being told about a memory of paleo contact. And it's kind of curious. 101 because, propaganda. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's what it, it is. is. Narrative control 101, except the funny thing is the, the narrator wants us to pour condemnation on the memory of paleo contact, but the author is guaranteed we'll never forget it. Because even though there's all this condemnation poured over it, the information is still there. Well, why do you think they work so hard to make her look bad and the focus on him? I mean, what was the goal of removing the female aspect? Because the female, I mean, I don't even know if that was symbolic or, or what it was, but that was such a beautiful story. And yes. it was such a good part of human development. And by removing yes. that and making it negative, that's kind of evil <laughs> you know i mean it's kind it's of it's evil for a couple of reasons first of all because you are demonizing the side of the story that's represented by the female and a lot of the wisdom uh, associated with asherah was traditionally taught by females uh, so all the basic knowledge about health farming uh Fertility, that was female tutelage. Now you've just demonized it. Uh, the, the other advantage to choosing the male Yahweh over the female Asherah is that the male Yahweh was brutal and would do mass killings 
if that's your God, you have just totally empowered your king. That's right. He can use all those same modalities and be considered holy because he's doing God's work. And you've empowered your king, if he wants to, to create an empire, because now with violence, he can invade other people's territory. And again, he's only doing the same thing we see God doing. And I think the reason it happened, I mean, you can see all those advantages, but I think there's a real pivot that happens when Josiah becomes king. He becomes king when he's only eight years old. And so clearly he needs advisors to help him rule. And his advisors were a Yahwist high priest and a Yahwist scribe. And so the Yahwist high priest, it's in his interest to get rid of all the other priesthoods. And so you can easily imagine Uncle Hilkiah, uh, the high priest, going to the boy Josiah and saying, Your Majesty, I have just identified another threat to your control of the kingdom and to your control of the narrative. It's this dirty priesthood down the road that your great-great-great-grandfather set up to Chemosh or Asherah or whoever else it may have been. Do you want me to deal with it? Oh, thank you, Uncle. Thank you so much. Please do. I mean, every yes to a question like that meant either the disbanding of a priesthood or the slaughtering of a priesthood Mm -hmm. and the demolition of a temple and the extinguishing of a narrative tradition. The advantage is now the high priest is running the show. And when the Jewish monarchy expired, all you had left was the high priestly tradition, who's now running what is essentially a religion. Judaism has changed from being a collection of tribes of people with a shared cultural memory to being a narrative. And if you're in that narrative, then you're the true Jew. And so it was really uh, about control, empowering the high priesthood, empowering the monarchy. And that might sound really extreme, but if you sit down with anyone who's got a theology degree and ask about the formation of the Bible, they will have to tell you that there are sources there that are there purely to ratify the monarchy and ratify the high priesthood. That's essentially what you're being told. Well, a lot of people think that the Bible at that point was really a way to consolidate power for the Roman empires because they were losing control. And this was a way to regain that control. And then it turned into a worldwide, the Vatican and the worldwide power because the Vatican controlled all the monarchies for a long time. They still yes, might. Yes, they did. Know. But, you know, it's funny. Um, the New Testament was more problematic for the Roman Empire, because there's plenty in the teaching of Jesus that is fundamentally inconvenient for any kind of feudalizing order. That's right, yep. What Jesus had to say about the money system, if you read it slowly enough, and the tax system, if you read it slowly enough, and any kind of feudalism, that's the last thing the Roman Empire would want in a sacred text. And so they really had to distort the Christian tradition to turn it from what it was originally into being the Roman Imperial Department of Religion. And so that included a control of um, not only the canonization of the Bible, the canonization of doctrine, but then the policing of it. 
And so there's a pretty critical moment that you reach in 381 when Theodosius is emperor, when he weighs into a theological debate, makes a ruling on it, and then illegalizes every other opinion. (laughs) That illegalization meant that all the Gospels that didn't make it into the Bible, if you wanted them to survive, you were going to have to bury them in the desert. Otherwise, they were all going to be burned. And we've got some record of book burnings and very significant uh, writers of the early period who represented the early Christian tradition where you can't find a single thing they wrote because it all destroyed because it didn't endorse this pyramid-shaped world with God and the emperor at the top, the bishops and the senators in the middle and the people at the bottom meekly paying, praying and obeying. And even within the canonical texts, you have to ignore certain parts of it in order for it to become the imperial religion. And that's essentially what happened, a distortion of what was in the text, distortion of translations, ignoring of certain texts. And then, of course, the art that gradually transformed Jesus into an Italian member of the militia, clearly somewhere under the authority of the emperor. So all these distortions happened because in the beginning, Christianity was something else. Well, and one thing that you talk about is how Jesus didn't like Yahweh either. And he was saying that those rules aren't God's rules. That's not God. Can you talk about that as well? Sure. I mean, this comes as a great shock to a lot of Christian believers because they will have a Bible where the Old Testament is glued to the New Testament. And just that very act gives the impression that it's a seamless story of God from beginning to end. And it must be the same God, surely. Christians have been entrained to believe it's a story of continuity, with Jesus simply telling us more about the Old Testament God than we knew before. But just to fast track um, the reframing of all this, I'd encourage people to go to Acts 15. And in Acts 15, the Apostolic Church held a council where they came to the decision that Yahwist monotheism was not the foundation for Christianity, that belief in and obedience to the Yahwist traditions was irrelevant, no longer needed, had expired, Christianity was not going to be built on that, and Yahweh's laws were at an end. That decision would have been absolutely impossible if Jesus was a Yahwist. Now go back and read the Gospels again with discontinuity in mind, and it's easy to find. Jesus makes very clear in the Gospel of John that when he talks about theos, the Greek word for God, the source of the cosmos, He's talking about something that his Jewish hearers don't know anything about. And when he talks about his father, that's Abba in the Aramaic or uh, Pater in the Greek, it's his way of addressing theos, the Greek concept of God. When he talks about all that with the apostles, again, it's something they don't know. Show us the father. We don't know your father is what they're saying. Jesus is bringing something new, and there's a very decisive moment uh, in which he speaks to the Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 8 and tells them that they've been following a lie. He talks about your father, the devil, your father, who was the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And they must be thinking, that, what are you talking about? 
our, our God is the only God, not according to Jesus. He has another saying where he says, this is in two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, what kind of father, if their children were hungry and thirsty, would give them a stone or a snake? Now, you and I might read that and think, oh, what a perverse scenario. Of course, no father would do that, except all the Jewish hearers knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about a moment in the Hebrew stories of Yahweh where the people of Israel were thirsty and starving in the desert. They've been on emergency rations for goodness knows how long. They've been eating this stuff called manna, a word that means we don't even know what it is. And they were complaining complaining that their families were starving and thirsty and Yahweh's response was to say there's a stone over there I'll show you I can get water from the stone and then when they complain again he sends snakes to bite them and many people die and so when Jesus says what kind of father gives a stone or snakes they knew exactly what he was talking about and he's saying Yahweh is no kind of father let me introduce you to something completely different. And when the Apostle Paul talks about Theos, he's not talking about Yahweh. He defines Theos in Acts 17 as the source of the cosmos, that in which we all live and move and have our being, um, of which we are all offspring. And that's an idea you could find in Plato. That's a fairly non-religious idea, if you think about it, what he's saying is your consciousness is a participation in source consciousness. Your intelligence, a participation in source intelligence. And the wonderful thing about that definition is there's no separation. And religion so often trades in separation anxiety. You know, you're separated from God, and that's going to be very bad for you in this life and the life to come. And we, the priests and pastors, will tell you how to claw your way back into God's good book. There's no possibility for that if we are all emanations of the source. And that's the vision Paul gives. Very different from Yahweh, who's this implacable, uh, violent figure who you have to tiptoe around for fear of offending by accident. And that is the vision that I think the Jesus story sets us free from. Yeah, I did. you know, that's what I was always taught, that Jesus came to re redefine what really is going on. But now even the the New Testament has some things that are whitewashed and and taken out and interpreted in different ways. I, if you were to take just what Jesus, that's why some people there's books for just what Jesus has said or what they think he said. There's a big difference when you can actually look at it from the original writings, right? I mean, is haven't have you come to yes. how would you oh, look for at sure. the thing? Yeah. I how think would, uh, Going to the source uh, by looking at the root meanings of the keywords, that's always a key to unlocking an original understanding. It's very difficult to go to your English translation and understand it differently to how you did last year. Uh, we have all these associations uh, layered onto familiar words. So whenever we read the word judgment, for instance, we think, oh, that's heaven and hell. That's eternal conscious torment for people who don't become Christians, isn't it? No, that's not what the word means. And just as I found going to the root meanings of Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Yahweh, El Ba'adat, all those words 
that reveal paleocontact in the Old Testament, go to the root meanings of the Greek in the New Testament, and another story emerges there. So I'll give you one, for instance. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he summarizes the message that Jesus toured with for the first year of his ministry. And the conventional translation goes like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you and I hear those English words and we think, oh, he's telling us to clean up our lives because God's about to show up and you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him. That's how we hear it. Go to the root meanings and you have metanoiete, which doesn't mean clean your life up. It means go beyond the mind. For the kingdom, if I say kingdom, well, that suggests we're all servants there to do the bidding of the king. It can be translated differently. Basileon can be realm. Go beyond the mind because the realm, Uranon, the realm of the cosmos, is available to you. This is a totally different message. Go beyond the mind because the whole cosmic realm is available to you. This is an invitation to explore. And then when later, you can find this in the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when he says uh, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, now he seems to be saying that if you look within yourself, you'll find the whole cosmic realm. And if you look deeply into the cosmos, you'll find yourself. So this is a profound, <clears throat> excuse me, invitation to explore and to explore what's possible. What does it mean if the principles of the cosmos are available to us? What does it mean if the powers of the cosmos are available to us? And I think much of the Jesus story is there to unpack what that might look like. And Jesus is presented as a model to us of what that might look like. And instead of it being a religion of worship and obedience, and by the way, Jesus said he didn't come to be worshiped. I did not come to be served. If we reframe our reading of the Gospels in this way, it stops being a religion of worship and obedience, and it becomes an invitation to explore who we are and to explore what's possible. And that's how I read the Gospels. There are so many supplements out there, it's confusing what's best for optimizing your health. Beyond getting your basic nutrition, if there's one vital ingredient for optimal health, it's carbon 60. Why? Because Carbon 60 is the world's most effective supplement at reducing inflammation and increasing longevity. Inflammation is a major contributing factor of almost all disease, including Alzheimer's, asthma, cancer, heart disease, obesity, and COVID vaccine injury. If you are serious about your health, try Carbon 60. Be careful though, not all Carbon 60 supplements are equal. I recommend Carbon 60 by Live Longer Labs, the scientists who first brought you Carbon 60 that was suitable for human consumption. They were also first to bring you Carbon 60 in pill form, first to incorporate black seed oil and curcumin, and first to incorporate frequency technology that gives you full spectrum health. You can be confident that you will be buying the absolute best. Buy or learn more with the link below or go to sarahwessel.com under shop. And would you say the story of our human life right now is reclaiming and re-understanding of what we are capable of being and, and doing and how that has been oppressed through all these mistranslations and whoever is trying to control that? 
Yes, absolutely. So when you look at the global suppression of these stories, and we gave the example of the narrative shift within Judaism, something like that happens all around the world whenever a theistic culture conquers another culture. So you can find it when the Spanish and Portuguese went into Central and South America. You can find it wherever the British have taken the empire. The local knowledge is deleted and replaced with Orthodox religion, Orthodox Christianity. Also, what is deleted is the tradition of ceremony that accompanies those stories. And you can go to many places and realize there's a connection. So you've got an ancient narrative that says our ancestors used to be smarter, used to have access to higher cognitive powers. And that's absolutely tied in with their ceremony and their shamanic protocols all designed to help us be more intelligent and be more conscious. The ceremony, as well as the stories, are suppressed. And so, for instance, in uh, the United States of America, in Canada and Australia, for the same 100-year period between the 1880s and the 1980s, indigenous ceremonies were illegalized, indigenous languages illegalized, and children were being kidnapped from indigenous families to cut them off from their indigenous memory and their indigenous powers. So the concern of the invading power is narrative control, and they also don't want people who know what they're thinking or who know when they're coming. So these things are absolutely tied together. And many of the narratives have an element which I think is most colorfully expressed in the Mayan story which says that there came a point when our, our non-human governors decided we all needed dumbing down. And so they came up, this is the story of uh, Quetzalcoatl, came up with a vapor that when sprayed over human populations would brain damage them to the point where they're limited to their five physical senses. And for anything beyond their immediate environment, they have to rely on an authority to tell them what's what. And the we're, progenitors. We're there the, now, but go ahead. I know it sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Progenitors in the story said we can work with that. We can work with that. But if people have far sight and future sight and empathy and telepathic connection, that's a population that's very hard to manage. And so Quetzalcoatl came up with the vapor. And I would suggest other governments have come up with other means or similar means. And it's echoed, I find this extraordinary, in the Nigerian story, the Nigerian story of Abasi and Atai told by the Epic people. And again, the non-human power said these humans are too intelligent. They're hard to manage. Let's release devices into the environment that will damage their health and their mental acuity keep them in a perpetual state of stress because we can work with that. But the positive take home of the epic story and the Mayan story is that absent of toxins in the air or toxins in the environment, you and I are far more intelligent and conscious. And if we can rid ourselves of those kind of toxins, suddenly we'll find our far sight switching back on, our future sight switching back on, our telepathic connection switching back on. And when we're that intelligent and that empathic, we are placed to build a better future. We're placed to build a better society. And I love the Hawaiian telling of the story that says in the past, 
when we had better empathy, we lived together in greater harmony. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in human potential, not just from the perspective of wouldn't it be fun to wander around with superpowers, but wouldn't it be better to live in a more harmonious, sustainable way? And all those things go together in ancestral narrative and ceremony. Well, that would start to eliminate wars, right? I mean, we're not going to fight a war where you're just going to slaughter and take out whole groups of people because you're mad at them. I mean, it just doesn't. Go ahead. Yes. I think, to be honest, we're not far off from being that kind of people already. Uh, And one of my, I mean, to make it current, I think that if you speak at the grassroots, to people living in the Middle East, the person in the street does not have an argument with the person in the street across the border. That's right. It's it's the powers who have an argument with one another. That's right. And I think one of the most dramatic examples of this I know is the story of the Christmas truce in the First World War, where working-class boys from Germany were slaughtering working-class boys from Britain and vice versa, Yep. But when it came to Christmas Day, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to kill each other. And they approached each other in no man's land and said, we can't do this on Christmas Day. So what did they do? They started playing soccer because those boys had no argument with each other. The argument was among the powers as to who, whose land was whose, whose humans were whose. It was a battle among the elites. And almost every war is like that. What it's happened? Not because, of a, not because of a lack of empathy from one people group to another. It's because of a tussle for power. Well, what happened to that after Christmas? Did they have to go, I mean, after oh. playing soccer and getting to know each other yeah. a bit? What Orders happened? were given from the top down to make sure that never happened again. Uh, because they recognized this was really dangerous. Because now these boys had mixed with each other and formed friendships. How can you go back to war? Well, they did because they were ordered to. But the higher-ups realized this was a disaster. If that happened next Christmas, (laughs) that could be the end of the war. And we had to have victory. And so it was enforced from the very top down that every hint of empathy with the opposition had to be stamped on. And stories had to be circulated to demonize the other side so that any sense of empathy would be diminished. And you can talk to people from the Second World War uh, on the German side of the equation who would tell you about the education they received that told them that it was a personal sacrifice they had to make for the war effort to extinguish any sense of empathy, because only then would they be able to do the things that the higher-ups were asking them to do. And that is very, very telling indeed. That's the power of our natural innate empathy. Well, and they have to really, the propaganda has to be laid on thick of how bad the other side is so that they can get the emotions going and everything going so that they will fight in the first place. Because without that propaganda and just they, they reduce the human being to something less, so that they can actually get them to fight. And with the internet and with us being able to communicate, it's kind of turning into one big soccer game. 
Oh, yes, it is. And I think it's important for people to realize that this isn't just something we do when we want to go to war. We don't just do the dehumanizing narrative of the country we want to fight. It happens within our own countries as well. Yep. You look out for your own government speaking without any finesse or empathy about a people group in your country. And it might be that they're there as refugees or asylum seekers or they're there as protesters, whatever it might be. As soon as you hear that dehumanizing language, know that that is the preliminary to treating people brutally and that the real goal of treating a, a group brutally is as a reminder to you of the power of the state, that violence is the privilege of the state. If it's done by the grassroots, it's a crime. And I think that's Terrorist. always a shadow side to these these actions. It's not really that your government is frightened of the few hundred asylum seekers you've got in some ship off the coast. They're maintaining control. They're sending messages. And they're not sending messages to people who are fleeing war zones in a blind panic for fear of their lives and the lives of their children. That's not where the message goes. The message goes to those watching the TV. And it's a power play. And I think we need to recognize that for what it is. And I think it's good to talk about it because it reminds us that we are not the state, that we feel differently, that we have empathy, that we have farsight that isn't reflected in the political speech of the moment. And I think it's our best ticket to be as emotionally intelligent as we can be at the grassroots. Because if we are really emotionally intelligent, we can't be manipulated by a demagogue. That's right. If we're empathic, we can't be manipulated by a xenophobe. And the politicians have to respond to the people in front of them. So we need to safeguard our own culture in a far more grassroots kind of way. Well, let's get back to that council. Do you think with everything that's going on at a big picture level, are they involved with that? Are they involved with some of these, knowing that there's such a disparate, you know, there's, it's, the way the grassroots thinks and the way the states are behaving, the gulf is getting larger and larger, right? That is becoming clear that the people just do yeah. not agree with the governments, right? And we're seeing uh, that yes. with the World Health Organization. We're seeing this, the United Nations, all these things where they're trying to cram down our throats, something that the people don't agree with, right? It's becoming pretty uniform. Is that just a bunch of rogue globalists or are there something else behind it? Well, again, if we go back to the very early Christians, uh, who we call Gnostics, when they talked about archons, they were talking about non-human powers who benefited from the energy of war. And they would manipulate leaders into more aggressive and paranoid stances so that they could foment war and then feed off everything that meant for them. Now, at a human level, we have corporations that benefit from war, and they might have an interest in yeah, fomenting sure. war, such as the military-industrial complex. But the Gnostics said, no, there's a non-human layer to that story as well. And that repeats in the Bible. And it, just to show uh, the relevance of it, there is a passage in 1 Kings 22 in which um, 
A fellow with far sight called Micaiah manages to remote view the Sky Council. And what he sees them doing is fermenting a war. And he sees an entity saying, I can manipulate this leader with false intelligence uh, into invading another country. Does that sound remotely familiar? Yep. To my ear, it does. And it suggests to me that our ancestors told that story so that we could be alert to repeats and understand that sometimes even a whole nation can be tricked into going into war against another nation on the basis of false information, false intelligence, but also on the basis of having been pushed into a more paranoid and aggressive frame of mind. So I think our ancestors are warning us that there are non-human powers who uh, love to see these kinds of conflicts and that they are among the powers gathered around planet Earth. And again, it's about being more emotionally intelligent. So we're less vulnerable to that kind of interference and more amenable to assistance and guidance from those who are here to help us. Yeah, because it's just not in our nature. I mean, we know who who wants to go out there and slaughter each other. It just makes absolutely no sense. Most people want peace and just to get along with their life. They don't want to be part of some big war. And it's becoming very clear that the, the vast majority of human beings on this planet agree with that and are at a distinct difference to their leaders in these governments. Now, let's let's talk about uh, you know, if all this, because I, I have some remote viewer friends that claim that, um, which that's a very interesting whole world. And actually, you talked about some kind of remote viewing thing in the Bible, which I want to ask if that's what it was about. But one thing that they were saying is that we will eventually hear in the few years, I don't know, in the future, we're going to be living amongst the extraterrestrials or the other races. And so it sounds like pretty soon we will be part of that. Like the Brigadier General that you were talking to, who was in charge of the space program in Israel, they're saying the same thing he was saying, but it's going to happen in the near future, probably in our lifetimes. We're going to be in that world. What do you think about that? And are people ready for it? Well, at a covert level, uh, we are already in that world. So Hayamashed is speaking about collaborations that have been going on for more than seven decades. So collaboration says we are in each other's presence at a covert level. Uh, you can go to another place, to the world's canon of abduction narratives, and every culture has that narrative tradition. And what's interesting about those stories is that those doing the abducting and the hybridizing are an ancient presence. They're not described as people have just turned up and are doing this. No, this is a non-human presence co-occupying planet Earth, and they've been doing this for thousands of years. So you find that whether you're listening to the Welsh narrative of Tilwitig or to the um, Gallic Celtic narratives of Scotland that were um that were uh, researched by Robert Kirk in the 1600s. You can go to uh, the Caribbean, hear about Yamoya. You can go to Ghana, hear about the Mamiwata people. They, they would all say, we have got company already. The Encantos in the Philippines would be another example. But it's not overt. It's not acknowledged other than in 
folkloric traditions, but it's already there. I think that uh, it's not hard. Well, I'll put it this way. I reckon you could sit down any family circle or any friendship circle, and if you ask people to share their stories of things they can't explain, by the end of the evening, you'll have worked out we've got company that isn't human. Our folkloric traditions say it's there, it's always been there, but it's not part of the mainstream narrative. And I think we are waiting again for that bar when we become a spacefaring civilization, when the conversation changes. That's when I think we'll find out what all these abduction narratives are about. And I think it is to do with others wanting to co-occupy Earth in a more overt way. And I don't mean that in a sense of invasion or takeover, just the fact that they're living here and they'd be happy it not being covert. Well, are they in a different dimension then, or are they hiding from us? Most of the ancient abduction narratives say they're hiding from us, uh, either by being cloaked or by living in underwater bases. Now, when I first heard that in the ancient narratives, uh, it totally surprised me. It seemed such an unlikely thing. And yet, whether you're in the Caribbean or the Philippines or Wales or, or Scotland, that is a feature of the story, that there are populations living in colonies under the oceans. Now, you might just leave that in the folklore basket and the fable basket until you start paying attention to what's been released by the Pentagon in the last six years. Because now we have footage of what's called transmedium anomaly. And now we have research into all domain anomaly. And what that language represents is that our military intelligence are invest investing in tracking craft that can travel in space, in the air, and under the oceans. And we can see footage of US pilots responding to craft, traveling at incredibly high speeds, and entering the water seamlessly. And the reaction of the pilots is very interesting because what they're implying is they're going to their base. And research has been done on electromagnetic anomalies under the oceans around the world that would hint at something technological going on at certain points under our oceans. And so putting that modern phenomenon alongside the ancestral narrative, I think there's a connection. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think we do have technology emerging from our oceans. In Chile, you can go, and it's common knowledge, but that is how our company is cloaked. They're not living on the surface with us. So that would be a horrible existence to a certain degree, that they aren't able to, unless there's a whole world there that we don't even know. I mean, is there like a whole inside the earth, the hollow earth or something, where it's just a whole beautiful abundant world that we haven't we can't see or is it they're actually hiding from us for thousands of years and that would be terrible well it would be a horrible existence for me i must say and this supports one theory about the hybridization narratives and i should say i know how stretching that language is for people uh, when i wrote the scars of eden my second paleo contact book i had no ambition to write a book about hybridization, because I know people find it ridiculous on first hearing. If somebody says I was abducted and used for hybridization, uh, 
natural in train thought is, oh, uh, $50 from the National Enquirer explains that story. But it's a universal story and it's an ancient story. And one of the explanations for this hybridization is that our visitors want their descendants to be better adapted to living on the planet's surface. And that is why they are hybridizing with us, so that their descendants will have a future among us. And the underwater bases, however ancient they may be, that's not their long-term plan. Well, I would think they wouldn't want to be part of that. With all your research and everything that you've done, as we finish this out, what are some of the most amazing things that you came up with that just changed your paradigm that we haven't talked about yet? (laughs) I think for me, it is to do with human potential. It was, first of all, the realization that this paleocontact narrative was there, that it was there in the Bible, that the narrative had been changed, and that the Bible itself tells us how the narrative had been changed. But as soon as I placed that alongside a whole world of indigenous narratives, I realized that a different story of human origins comes with different implications about human potential. And almost all the stories of paleocontact as the explanation for human origins have this element of our ancestors with higher cognitive powers. And they all have that theme that I mentioned earlier from the Mayan and the Nigerian story that you and I still have them. And that if we can maximize our health and maximize the cleanliness of our environment, we will begin firing off all those cognitive powers that are latent in our brains. And I was, my mind was blown when I realized that this is a genuine field of peer-reviewed science in the world today called acquired savant syndrome. And that is the syndrome where you suffer a brain injury and it accidentally knocks on a higher cognitive ability. So you have a, a brain injury and all of a sudden you've got phenomenal uh, mathematical skills, or you can read the formulaic mathematical structures of everything, or you can speak a language you couldn't speak before, or you can play an instrument you couldn't play before, or you are a brilliant artist when you weren't before. This is a real-world phenomenon. And so these peer-reviewed neuroscientists are asking the question, what are higher cognitive abilities doing in our brains in the off position? From a naturalistic evolutionary framework, it doesn't make any sense at all. But you go back to the ancestral narratives, it makes every sense. Because our ancestors say we all have higher cognitive abilities. We can all remote view. We can all future view. We can all have telepathic connection. We can all have x-ray vision and have better self-healing. It's just a matter of reactivating what has lain latent for so long and it can be reactivated through psychoaffective teas which was plato's method uh, or through other modalities controlled conscious breathing is another modality through pineal activation which is hinted at in the sumerian stories and so my my excitement is that that's who we are we are far more conscious far more intelligent capable of far more and uh 
capable of building a better human experience once we begin reactivating ourselves. And I can understand why governments in the past would want to suppress it, but I think that age is at an end because people all around the world are having experiences that are telling them this is possible. Everyone I know would say they've had a flash of future viewing or a flash of far sight. And you have enough of those and you'll start asking, can we nurture this? And the answer is, yes, we can. And I'm very excited about our doing exactly that. Well, let me, one last thing then. You wrote about it a little bit in your book about, you didn't call it remote viewing, but you talked about something that sounded like remote viewing. Were they talking about that in ancient scripture? Yes. I mean, we think of the prophets in the Old Testament, but the word used for many of those people was seers. Uh, you go to the Hebrew word, it means seers. They saw things that other people couldn't see. That's prophets. See, seeing things in the future, seeing things that are far away. And in the Mayan story, it has a wonderful way of expressing this. It says that before the spraying of that vapor, our sight was not limited. And you think about how our sight is limited. It's limited by distance. So we can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see into deep space. It's limited by surfaces. We can't see behind things. We can't see into things. Limited by time. We can only see the present, can't see the past, can't see the future. It's limited by frequency. I can only see this range of frequencies of radio waves. If our sight is not limited, all of a sudden you have remote viewing, you have future viewing, you have x-ray vision. You can then see entities that you couldn't see before. You can see what your cat can see. You can see what your dog can see. And I love that Mayan way of expressing it because I think it's a very cinematic way of understanding what a heightening of cognitive powers might look like. And as I say, it's not about superpowers. It's about how intelligently can we live? How well can we live in harmony? How best can we live in balance with our environment? And I think that's the journey that we, many of us are on but that we, at an even grander level, need to be on. Okay, so where can people find you, get your books, they have to follow you. This has been such an amazing conversation. Well, if you go to Amazon and Kindle, you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, and The Eden Conspiracy. You can watch me on fifthkind.tv, go to YouTube, you'll find me on the Paul Wallace channel and Fifth Kind. And you can get into conversation with me via my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such a pleasure for me to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure.